Thank you. So we'll tell the story. So here we are in the colonies. Things are bad and getting worse. But there's a notable voice, a guy named Solomon Stoddard. How many of you ever heard of him? Okay, he was congregational. That would be the denominational group that came from the pilgrims, okay? And uh, what's different about him is he thinks there's something we can do about this. That is about the awful state of the churches and uh, society also as a result of the declension of the churches. He uses the word revival. He's in Northampton, Massachusetts. He has gatherings for preachers where he starts teaching this. And uh, what we're talking about is what we've just read in the Bible. Draw nigh to God, he'll draw nigh to you. We need to repent. He also said that people could repent. They could make decisions that would matter. Now, he was, like everybody else, a five-point Calvinist, okay? But he did not exaggerate that theology. And incidentally, I am not. I'm not a Calvinist because of, uh, I'm not a Calvinist because I don't find that interpretation of election in the Bible. You know, if the Bible taught that God is only going to save certain people that he decided to love, I would preach it and believe it. Okay, but it doesn't teach that. Okay, but he was a five-point Calvinist like everybody was, but he believed that a person, that a Christian was under an obligation to turn back to God when they're in their sins. Okay, and that God will do something. Something will happen. As a matter of fact, he upset a lot of the other Calvinists. He used to speak of holy violence. We need to attack the power of darkness, powers of darkness, with holy violence. We need to call on people to decide. And a lot of Calvinists, misinterpreting even their own theology, are offended by the idea of us deciding anything in the world. He made trouble, but he persuaded more and more preachers in the Northeast about this matter of revival. During his pastorate there, he records several harvests. Incidentally, I think you can Google him and read some of the things he wrote. It's really amazing. We still have this stuff. He had several harvests. I don't have them in front of me now. 1600s and 1700s. That's when he pastored, where he said we had a harvest, meaning a period of time where they had a lot of people get saved, like for a month. And he called them a harvest. We had the harvest of 1689, but not the big revival he believed in and hoped for. Preached about it all this time. Now, all this is kind of laying the groundwork. To tell you the truth, studying big revivals and uh, seeing how the groundwork was laid encourages me unbelievable. Because yep. there are things happening now that are like the prelude to some of the other great revivals. So here was a man who spoke loudly, believing in revival, okay? There's another guy, I've got his name on there, Theodore Frelinghuysen. He was a Dutchman, came over to the colonies, landed in New Jersey. Now, he was quite uh, a preacher that people would notice because he was famous for splitting churches. Oh. Split, I think, four of them. You know why? He came here and found the mess. I told you about the halfway covenant. There were worse things. In the colonies, the practice was to ordain unconverted men who never even claimed that they were Christians because it was believed in the colonies the most educated man in town should be the pastor. So they were on ordaining unconverted men. 
and then the halfway covenant, but other places, they were offering communion to the unsaved. You don't have to be saved to take communion. Well, he came in and he preached against that, preached against the sins of the people, split churches, had some revivals. Not the big one. Theodore Freilinghusen. I drove from New York into Pennsylvania one time. I think there's a county called Freilinghusen. Incidentally, how do I know how to pronounce it? Both uh, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, in their writings, wrote phonetically how to pronounce his name. <laughs> Freilinghusen because he was very important. You know, not one of the big names, but very important. The Tenants, that's a family of preachers in New Jersey and uh, Pennsylvania who were Presbyterians. They rose up and spoke against uh, ordaining unconverted men and other wrong practices. They were influenced by Frenninghusen when the dad uh, and the boys went somewhere in New Jersey and saw a real revival happen under the preaching of Frelinghuysen. So this is all in the early days, and the big awakening hasn't come yet. So, but it's all preparation. It's all important. Then Stoddard dies, and his grandson is the assistant pastor at the church. He takes over, and he begins by preaching a series on justification by faith alone, not by works, it's faith in Christ. And at the end of that series, a great number of young people in their town, Northampton, were converted to Jesus Christ. And then it just kept going, and hundreds and hundreds of people were saved, and word went around the colonies. It was called the Great Awakening, and that guy's name was Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, grandson of Solomon Stoddard. Stoddard never saw the Great Revival, but his grandson did. And the Great Revival was based on truth, eternal truth. It's really interesting, the history of revival, to see the ones who were in between. I mean, in between the big ones. They were very important. Think about Isaac Watts. Any of you know who Isaac Watts was? He was a uh, dissenter preacher in England. That means he wasn't connected with the Church of England. Wrote wonderful songs. Never saw a big revival in his lifetime. But when he was an old man, the great evangelical awakening with the Wesleys happened. And all the converts sang Watts' songs. See, he was in between. He was doing his part, faithfully preaching the truth and believing the truth. And, you know, but there was a great revival that happened over there. Matter of fact, our pastor uses the same name, Great Awakening, for the one that was happening in England and America, because on both sides of the Atlantic, they were definitely taking place. The tenants started a college, because a lot of times you have to do that, because a lot of times the preacher's thinking was wrong. That's what was wrong with the churches. The preacher's thinking was wrong, and the colleges started years ago to preach and teach biblical truth had slid away from the truth. So he started a college. He called it the Log College because the building was made of logs. We call it Princeton, <laughs> Princeton University. That's where it was. And Jonathan Edwards, 1734 is when the Great Awakening began with this series on justification by faith. You know, I read Jonathan Edwards in my public high school. 
Yeah. Now, they would publish, and we had to read, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Okay. That was not preached in his church. That was preached in another church in Connecticut because he was going around and uh, preaching during the revival during that time. I think they made us read that to understand or get a taste of how quaint people believed back then. I think it was meant to be to make us put off. But people who teach language or English say that Jonathan Edwards was America's first intellectual philosopher, a great mind. It's so interesting to me because Edwards was mainly a revivalist and his writings that were considered intellectual were in defense of revival. So many good books. If you can pick up a book by Jonathan Edwards, they still speak to you. And he is recognized as America's first intellectual, but what was he? He was a revivalist defending revival against the critics. Wow. Now, all of this is going on all over the country. The Baptists are a sect, a tiny little group. But at the end, I'm going to tell you this at the end. Oh, many people were converted to Christ. Many new churches were started all across what became the United States. The largest number of new churches were Baptist churches. The leaders were Anglican. George Whitfield, I didn't even mention him. He was an evangelist from England who many times crossed the Atlantic to preach here in the open air. Matter of fact, he's buried here. He died while in the colonies. Loved America so much, he's buried in New England somewhere. One of the greatest preachers that ever lived was George Whitfield. And uh, so he was Anglican, and uh, Jonathan Edwards was congregational, and the tenants were were Presbyterian, how was it that the Great Awakening produced more Baptist churches than any other kind? Here's how. I called it the progression. Now watch, here's the way this goes. Somebody hears the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit, maybe by Whitfield, largely by Whitfield. They heard the gospel, they would get saved, okay? When they get saved, they would join one of the pro-revival churches, now, the churches were divided. My wife is just still stunned that people are against revival, but always revival is controversial. I'm not talking about phony revival. I'm talking about real revival. It's always controversial. You know why? There's a devil. And many of the arguments against revival back then are still being used today. Well, anyway, uh, pro and anti. Like some of the churches in New England were called Old Light, and others were called New Light churches. Old Light were those who opposed the revival. Many of them Calvinists who believed that revival was a sovereign act. There's nothing you can do to bring a revival. Repent till you're blue in the face. Pray day and night. God is only going to revive those he decides to revive when and how he wants to. And that point of view is still around. Okay, the Old Lights... The new lights were with the revival, okay? And there were a number of different names. So here you hear Whitfield or somebody like that, and you get saved, and your old dead church is no good anymore. So you're going to join a pro-revival church like a new light congregational church. In New England, a lot of the churches were congregational, so they would join a pro-revival church, okay? 
Then here they are saved and they're revived. That means Sunday morning I preached on uh, the most basic of the basics, which is to do the will of the Father. Uh, I'll give you a little idea of what's been happening here with the uh, God is bringing revival uh, into Riverview Baptist Church. We're releasing it uh, to God be the glory. A man got saved last night after church. A wonderful thing. But uh, Sunday morning was the most basic of the basics, and that is doing the will of the Father. Those are the people Jesus addressed. The people who wanted to do the will of the Father. Sunday night was, are you worldly? Then, you know, last night was, are we hypocrites? Important issues through that line. So now watch. A saved guy who's revived guy, he wants to do the will of God, starts reading his Bible. Duh. They all did. When they started reading the Bible, they ran into some troubling passages. I'm a member of a New Light Congregational Church. I'm pro-revival. I see God at work. But when I read the Bible, it looks to me like they baptized them after they repented, not when they were babies. And it looks like it was under the water and not a little sprinkle on the head. What about that? You know what revived people studying their Bible would go to the Baptist, a little sect, and ask to be immersed. And the ranks of the Baptist grew and grew and grew. And that progression happened over and over again like the Shubal Stearns. How many ever heard of Shubal Stearns? I'm going to bring him up. And he was saved under George Whitfield and then joined the separate Congregationalist. That's another name for pro-revival Congregationalist. Okay, then he read his Bible, went to the Baptist, and got himself baptized. And a whole movement of revived Baptists were called separate Baptists. That's where it came from. It was a word that meant pro-revival Baptist. They adopt the New Testament teaching about baptism in the church. They seek out a Baptist church to immerse them and join the Baptist. Now, and there was also Adoniram Judson. He was one of the congregational young men at Williams College who was there for the uh, Haystack prayer meeting. You may have heard of That's the Second Great Awakening. Went to the mission field. And on his way over there, I think it was, that he decided that baptisms by immersion. See, this progression went on. And so Baptists became very key to the Great Awakening, especially toward the end. Now, the dates I gave was 1734. It's not hard to decide when a great revival begins. And this was Jonathan Edwards at Northampton. Okay, but it's hard to decide when it ends. It basically fizzles. If we have time, I'll tell you why. It's pretty evident why the national revivals fizzled. Okay, and these are temptations right in front of us today. But anyway, they fizzle. How can you give a date? But it was around 1760. But before this, Shubal Stearns, Daniel Marshall, and others were Baptists who went through the progression and became Baptists through the revival. Now, I spoke to a meeting of preachers in Ohio because of the strange ideas people are getting about revival and Baptists. And I said, you know what? If we raised Shubal Stearns from the dead and brought him to the meeting and we interviewed him and I said, Mr. Stearns, you're a Baptist, right? Yep, that's right. You believe in the distinctives? You practice them? Yes, I do. Amen, brother. 
And uh, what do you think about George Whitfield? You know what Shubal Sturge would say? I believe he's the greatest man alive. Marvelously used of God and the instrument that brought me to Jesus Christ. Now, he wouldn't be saying, you know what he is? He's a baby-sprinkling, unseparated Anglican. But he was. But I'm going to tell you, he was also used of God. I'm going to explain something to you in just a minute. So, And the Baptists were not antagonistic to everybody else. Although they benefited the most from the revival. Because when you revive somebody, they get reading the Bible. You know what? Here we go. A Baptist is born over and over and over again. Now, I have printed out a long thing I'm not going to read to you. I give it to you so you can read it by David Cummins. Do any of you know who Dr. David Cummins was? From my state of Michigan. He was a Baptist pastor who, on his own, studied Baptist history. He, I was with him where he was teaching in a college, and I was too. And uh, he said to me, uh, you know, they will call me Dr. Cummins. I got an honorary doctorate. He said, somebody ought to give me an honorary, ba honorary bachelor's degree because I have a high school diploma. And uh, also, I took a Bible Institute certificate, but I don't have all this scholarship. What he did was, on his own, he studied Baptist history. He's the one who came up with This Day in Baptist History. How many of you have that book? They're really good. Well, I printed out the story of Shubal Stearns and North Carolina Sandy Creek in his words. So you can have it and so that you can read it. While I'm mentioning that, let me mention something else. The last thing I'm going to talk about has to do with the Great Awakening and Indians from this part of Wisconsin. Okay. And I've got a uh, term paper from the, uh, from the uh, History of Revival book written by missionary Sam Sandlin about that very thing. The Great Awakening and Indian Missions, but especially about Wisconsin. And you might want to read this uh, somewhere here. I can't give it away. Then today, one of the ladies from the church here handed me, she works for the United Nation, something that's worth its weight in gold. And that is detailed information about the tribes around here that were affected by the gospel that was brought here by their tribesmen from the East and the Great Awakening. So this is great what I've got in there is good. This is great, and this is unbelievable. And I'm not giving any of it away. But um, maybe at lunch you might want to go through some of that. It's pretty, because a lot of it has to do with right here. I talked to uh, the archivist for the United Nation on the phone. I wasn't able to get with him and uh, learned several things. But the, the history is right here. It comes right all the way over here. But the separate Baptists I brought up to you, among them was Shubal Stearns, were revivalistic Baptists. So now let me do something here very important. I don't have a blackboard, but I'm going to write on it anyway. Okay, ready? We have the Baptist. Oh, there we go. I don't know if I have to do this. I can do it. Here we go. Can you see this? Can you see this board? Oh, you want to do that? Okay. Uh, okay, this will work. Whoa, okay. Good, that's good enough. That's fine. Okay, let me find something. I can usually mess things up pretty bad. Okay, ready. We have talked about the Baptist principle. 
What does the Bible say? We have talked about the revival principle. God responds to us when we respond to him. Okay, now watch. The Baptist principle has to do with New Testament practice. It's practice. What is the church? Who are the officers of the church? What is baptism? Who is to be baptized? That's the subject of the Baptist principle. That's what we call the distinctives. Okay, Like I said, Baptists have adopted different theological positions. Calvinism, Arminianism, different views about sanctification, other things, there's no question about that. There have been differing views. But theirs is about New Testament practice. Can you watch? And the revival principle is about New Testament power. How to live and serve in the power of the Holy Spirit. The New Testament power. Now watch. What if we had a church that followed the Baptist distinctives? We baptized people by immersion. Uh, every member uh, was independent in his thinking in the sense of uh, of um, uh, yeah, individual soul liberty and priesthood of the believer. Uh, the officers were pastors and deacons. We did everything right down the line, like Acts chapter 2, and we did it the Bible way. We followed New Testament practice. What if we had a Baptist church, but the other thing about it, it was dead or in a doornail? And nobody in our church cared a lick for anybody else. We weren't trying to reach people for Christ. And basically, the philosophy of our Baptist church is us four and no more. Okay. Is that New Testament Christianity? Don't be fooled into thinking that it is. Because it's not. Now, what if I understood the revival principle and humbled myself and sought the face of God and learned how to abide in Christ and bear fruit? That would be a good thing. But what if because of my background, I didn't really understand New Testament practice? All my life, baptism was the christening of a baby, so I keep doing it. Although, I'm filled with the Holy Ghost. God's using me. Okay, now, what are you trying to say, Brother Flanders? Here's what I'm saying. The New Testament, the Baptist principles about New Testament practice... We can follow the people who followed New Testament practice. And the revival principle is New Testament power. Okay, that's for sure. We've already mentioned some people in history who understood and had New Testament power, but did not follow New Testament practice. And I haven't told you, there are people who followed New Testament practice, Baptist people, who did not believe in the revival principle. Some of them opposed the revivals. Isn't that interesting? But you know what we also have in history? People who followed New Testament practice who also had New Testament power. A lot of them are forgot. One of them was Shubal Stearns and the separate Baptists. If you read his writings, they would have prayer meetings for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 
I'm going to tell you nowadays, if we called a prayer meeting of Baptists in this county for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a lot of people would get uncomfortable. But they weren't uncomfortable with that at all. They believed in the ministry of the Holy Spirit to spread the gospel and win souls. Of course, where they ended up was Schubel, who was a Connecticut guy, in the Great Awakening, they wanted to find a place to preach the gospel where it had not really been heard and where the awakening had not really impacted anyone. And Stearns found out, and Marshall, who was a relative, uh, that North Carolina was fertile ground. Matter of fact, George Whitfield, I was just in North Carolina, found out that George Whitfield had gone to the eastern part of North Carolina where I was and didn't get much of a reception. And in his writing, he found the Christians there very worldly. Okay, but he would go back more than once. There's a place called Bath, B-A-T-H, North Carolina. That was about an hour from where I was. I didn't go to see it. Nothing to see now. But the people in that part of North Carolina remember the Whitfield curse. Now, I wouldn't call it a curse. This actually happened. At the Anglican Church where he preached for the last time, he'd been there many times, there was some very public rejection of the truth. So that Whitfield, leaving the church, wiped the dust off his feet publicly. And he said, we have the words that he said, that Bath would never be any more than a village, even though it was the first city in North Carolina, right on the coast, with all the promise of a lot of prosperity as a coastal trade city. He said, Bath will never be more than a village. And God's Judgment will be on this city because they rejected the truth, walked away. Now, average people call it the Whitfield curse. You know why? Bath, North Carolina, population today is 250. It's nothing. And people who don't understand this say it's because of what Whitfield said. (laughs) And you know what? I kind of think it was. (laughs) Yeah. So, but basically North Carolina was for, in the West, they were Moravians in Salem, but they were only reaching Indians. And uh, they were German people. So Stearns and Marshall and a few others, a good number of others, came down to North Carolina, stopped in a place called Sandy Creek. One of you came up to me, said, you've been there. I've been there, too. Sandy Creek, it's worth visiting. But, But what happened was, filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to preach the gospel. People started getting saved. They started a church. That's what Baptist people do. See, we believe, saved, baptized form a church. They did. Then that church formed another church. In just a few years, they had the Sandy Creek Baptist Association, several churches. Then they got into the practice of being filled with the Holy Spirit, evangelizing the area, baptizing the converts, starting the church. Then a church would bring about another church, mother churches, baby churches. And you know what? This is the truth. That was 1755. Somebody has studied and connected the dots. How many churches in the South, they're all in the South, were formed really out of the Sandy Creek Revival, which is at the end of the Great Awakening? How many? Well, they kept forming more churches, Tennessee, different ones. Uh, Your church would give birth to another church and would move on. Somebody said that by like the 1820s, do the math, 1755, I can't do the math. 1820s, okay, 1825 would be how many years later? 70 years later. That by that time that they were able to find and record 
and identify 1,000 Baptist churches that had been started out of the one revival. See, and the Baptists were spreading like wildfire. And before the Great Awakening, the Baptists were a sect. And you know, just talking history, not talking about anything biblical or spiritual, the Baptist denomination in the United States was born in the Great Awakening. That's what they would say. Because it was nothing until the Great Awakening. See, and their attitude was good. They didn't have a nasty attitude toward Tennant or Edwards or Whitfield because they were together on New Testament power. See, but now, how should we look at this? In my class, we learn from the Bible and then history that revival is relative. Okay, stay with me on this. This is important. Revival is relative. What do you mean by that? Revival is the work of God whereby God lifts us up or brings us back to the place where he can bless us according to the new covenant. Yeah, that's what it is. We humble ourselves and seek his face. That's what he does. Okay, now watch. But revival is relative like the ER. If somebody here got really sick, killed over, passed out, there you are in the aisle, and uh, we had to take you down to the emergency room, which is the nearest emergency room to where I am now, Pastor? What hospital? St. Mary's, okay. going to take, I always want to know where that is. I'm getting old enough. I like that. So we go down to the ER. So the people in there, the doctors, nurses, and others, they work with people to revive them. We're going to resuscitate them. That's what we're going to do. But revival is always relative. If I passed out like that, I had a pain in my chest. They went down there, did the test. Your heart's okay now, but it looks like you may have had a heart attack. You're up and around. Your color is back. You're walking around, breathing good. You can go home. Would they suggest I see my family doctor? Yeah, because I've been revived, but I may not be thoroughly healthy. We better check and see. Okay, now watch. Did you know somebody could be confused in their head? about New Testament practice, but really be revived. Matter of fact, I've known of people who weren't straight about all their standards, and they weren't straight in their head about all of their doctrine. I'm not talking about the gospel here, but who humbled themselves like most independent Baptists never do. And I think I've seen revival. It's through history. Wesley. Wesley was one of the most phenomenal evangelists the world has ever seen. Short, skinny little guy, had a strong voice. He was full of the Holy Ghost, folks. Now, I think his hair was too long. You ever seen his pictures? I think his hair was too long. He was Arminian. You might say John Wesley was an Arminian. Well, the magazine he published was called The Arminian. <laughs> he sprinkled babies. He actually said the original form of baptism was immersion, but he thought it was okay. Matter of fact, the Methodist church today allows pastors to baptize anybody, people by any mode. If you say, I want to be poured, sprinkled, or immersed. Did you know you could be immersed in a Methodist church? I did some research and found the first immersions in Michigan were done, done by the Methodist in a revival down at the River Rouge, which is down by Detroit. See, they're allowed to do that. Now, we don't think that's very consistent. I think John Wesley was wrong about a few things. So here's the mistake I can make. 
If I hear that the wrong people, I mean, they're not independent, fundamental, radical, right-wing, temperamental Baptists like me. I hear that it sounds like they had a revival, but I know a little problem. They used the wrong Bible. They uh, Maybe, you know, their standards aren't, maybe some of the music is a little jivey, something like that. One of the things I could do is I say, that's no revival. If they don't believe exactly like me, it's not a revival, brother. There's a lot of that going on. That's not a revival. I'll tell you what. Don't you call me that a revival. That's one extreme. Okay, here's a big mistake. Some of your members might get close to it and find out it was. Miracles. Not talking about charismatic. Great numbers of people converted. And as much as you try... You can't make it out as a false revival. There was a big revival up in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, 1971. All over Canada, I go to Canada a lot. You'll meet people who say, yeah, my dad was saved at the Saskatoon revival. It lasted for like eight weeks. Thousands and thousands of people. Started in a Baptist church, incidentally. And uh, people were critical of it for one thing. After about two weeks... People of different denominations were showing up. And sometimes I ask the question, what would you do if a revival broke out? Christians were getting publicly right with God. People were going to the police station and confessing the crimes and paying back bills, making things right all over the city. What would you do if that was happening? Thousands of people were crowding into They had to rent an Anglican church up there because the Baptist church wouldn't hold them anymore. What would you do, stand at the door and ask to see everybody's independent Baptist ID card? People were coming. There was no unequal yoke. They were not recognizing liberals. Matter of fact, the pastor, who was the leader of it, Bill McLeod, wrote a book on ecclesiastical separation called The Ox and the Ass. He took a real stand. Incidentally, somebody from the Billy Graham organization came up there while it was happening, was there for a week, told Bill McLeod, he said, I've been in so many hundreds of crusades. We've seen a lot of people say, but I've never seen a revival before today. I've never seen a revival. And uh, it was an amazing thing. But uh, where was I going with this? <laughs> that was, okay, now watch. Sometimes there were people who were thus there <laughs> who don't think right. And one extreme is, I know of a church in that area that while that was going on, their pastor decided, like us independent Baptists like to be, decided there was something wrong with it. For one thing, we think there's something wrong with it when it's big. Oh, yeah. When it's successful. There's got to be something wrong with it. Because if it isn't as small and nondescript as my church, <laughs> then there's got to be something wrong with it. He sent a committee of his men down to the Saskatoon revival one night they went one night and the night was given to testimonies and a couple of hours of testimonies lined up people who got saved people who got right people who got victory over their sins and they came back and reported and the pastor announced that's not of God because they don't have preaching now I thought two things number one they did have preaching for weeks and weeks and weeks that one night they gave the testimonies I don't know why but I'm going to tell you something. What about you? Would you be able to have two hours, three hours of testimonies? You see, us guys who have nothing happen, 
find it easy to be critical of people when stuff's happening. See, revival's relative. Now, look, if a person said, dear Lord, I know what you want, but I'm not going to give it to you, they wouldn't be revived. There's got to be absolute surrender. But a person could be confused. An Anglican, brought up Anglican their whole life, could be full of the Holy Ghost. See, I hope Baptists could help him. In my lifetime, there was something they called the Jesus People Revival in California. In a little bit way, I was touched by it. A little bit. And I meet people sometimes who will tell me, don't be critical of me, but it was the Jesus People Revival. I'm going to tell you, that was a real revival and widespread. But they were misled. They got into... You know, rock music, all this type of stuff, okay? You know what I think, just as my opinion, okay? My opinion is this. Very early on, the fundamental Baptists started criticizing them, washing their hands of them, saying that's not a revival. Now, listen, friends, there are two things, New Testament practice and New Testament power. You might have New Testament power, but not understand New Testament practice. You might have New Testament practice, but not have New Testament power. That's not revival either. But I have thought if an army of us had gone to California and these pippies living in communes all came to know Jesus, if we had come over there and taught them separation and the local church, I think that whole thing would have ended up a whole lot different. Probably because I'm an optimist. But I'm going to tell you, we don't need to wash our hands because revivals are revivals. Even if the people aren't exactly right. And you know what? If you and I are exactly right, we owe something to them. I'll tell you one more thing. And that's this. I think we have the prospects of seeing the most pure and powerful revival we've seen in a long time. Because we've got people who are doctrinally correct, separated from the world, and involved in New Testament practice, who are seeking for revival. The errors of those who are revived limit and undermine the revival. I don't have enough time. I can tell you how D.L. Moody's great campaigns. If you don't appreciate D.L. Moody, you're not thinking straight. He was a Congregationalist, though, and his Congregational views and errors limited the effects of those revivals. See, are you saying if Baptists were running all the revivals. It would be a pure and powerful revival like never before. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. See, because doctrine and practice are important. But, you know, don't say that's not a revival. It may be a revival where the people need help. Probably our help. Probably our help. So we have Stearns and, of course, all across the South. Baptist churches are like the main thing in the South. That's exactly why, 1755. That's a long time ago. Then the other ones we mentioned here are the natives. Now, the, um, the Great Awakening certainly spawned Indian missions. I'll let you read it, big time. Uh, David Brainerd, who is related to Jonathan Edwards, became a missionary to the Indians and saw a revival at a place in New Jersey where a great number of Indians were converted to Christ. He was having a problem with dealing with Native Americans, and that was this. He was preaching his heart out with very little effect because of alcohol 
and demons. See, sound familiar? Okay. And he went from place to place to place and preached and preached and preached. They heard the truth with very little effect. Then Brainerd called the different places where he had preached together to a place called Cross Wing Sung. That's, I think, in New Jersey. They all came together in a great crowd. And, of course, he had prayed. And God came down. There was a great revival. And hundreds of natives were saved went back to their local villages and where they were free from the alcohol and free from the devil. And they had Indian towns that were different than any Indian towns in this country because Jesus made them free. But we got the Baptists. Some of those reaching Native Americans in New England were Baptist people. And we've got the names of people. And you know what? Your local tribes have these same names. And uh, they came to Christ, started churches. Uh, there was a place in New York State called Brothertown. And uh, the Indians named themselves after Brothertown. Uh, another one is uh, Stratford. Is there Stratford Indians around here? Or have I got the name wrong? Stockbridge. Stockbridge. Okay, see, that was a little bit close. Started with an S. Stockbridge Indians from over there. Now, what happened was, over a period of time, they had to be forced out of where they were on the East Coast. And not only that, they had a burden for their brethren in the tribes and came right to where we're standing, to these areas. Now, the Oneida Nation, the man in charge of the archives there said they were not as much impacted by, he knew about the Christians who came. That's a big part of this area's history. Did you know that? And of course, there's a brother town uh, that's near Lake Winnebago, and uh, that is directly from the ones who came over here and preached the gospel. And uh, But this uh, Stockbridge Indian tribe, there is a museum for them, but it's an hour away that probably has information and stuff about this. Native Americans who led their brethren to Christ and started churches over here. My friend who did the research on this, and I have this thing, says that the first time the gospel was preached clearly in the state of Wisconsin was by the natives who came out of the Great Awakening. The very first time the gospel was ever preached in clarity over here was by natives for whom Jesus died. Jesus is not the white man's God. Jesus wasn't white in the sense of European. I don't know what color he was. He died for every tongue, kindred, people, and nation. And the revival impacted them, even right where we stand, right here. And friends, uh, we wanted to clarify some things about revival and about the Baptists. You can be right about New Testament practice, but not right about New Testament power. You can be right about New Testament power, but not about New Testament practice. That can happen. So you at least recognize what's going on. In the Great Awakening, we had Schubel Stearns and Daniel Marshall and the, uh, and the, uh, uh, and the separate Baptists who were right about both. We had a guy named Henry Allen, probably never heard of him, A-L-L-I-N-E. I would probably pronounce it Aline or Aline, 
but Wikipedia says pronounce it Allen. Okay, he was revived in New England, went to Nova Scotia. Last year I was at Nova Scotia for the first time in my life. There are Baptist churches everywhere. He went there after the 1800s started as a Baptist evangelist. They saw revival up there because of the time. They say it's part of the Second Great Awakening, but really he came out of the Great Awakening and came up to Canada. He was called the Apostle of Nova Scotia and evangelized the island. So that today, now these churches are dead in a doornail, but they're Baptist in name all over the island. How come there's so many Baptists in uh, Nova Scotia? Henry Allen, one man, full of the Holy Ghost, went up there. There were a couple of men, leaders in New England who were uh, at the foundation of a movement called the Free Baptists. Many of our churches, if we, they're old, if you'll check back in your history, your church may have been a Free Baptist. Do you know who they were? They were non-Calvinistic Baptists that were formed in the Great Awakening and had a very significant role to play in the cause of Christ in our country afterwards. And I'll, I'll tell you what, let's take a look at this, and I'll quit right at noon. I have a list at the end of the effects of the Great Awakening because they do have to do with us. New churches, but the largest number of them were Baptist churches in the way that we just explained. New Christians, 50,000 conversions during those dates. A new spirituality in the churches. They were lifted up. A new appreciation for Bible truth. That's the foundation of a new nation. Uh, new colleges like the Log College and Dartmouth. A new moral tone. In the French Revolution, there was a revolutionary movement all across Europe that was basically anti-Christian all over Europe. The worst example was the French Revolution with the guillotines, the bloody French Revolution. And England never had that. And historians say it was because of the Wesleyan revival, which is our great awakening. That's what made the difference. A new moral tone, a new increase in preachers, a new missionary movement in America and Europe, and a new nationality. I didn't come up with that. But you know what historians say? The Great Awakening gave the colonists a common experience all over the colonies. That's something they had all experienced was the Great Awakening. Many of them came to Christ, but even those who did not were affected by Bible preaching and the power of the Holy Ghost. Yeah. A new and now we were not just Germans, Dutch, English, living in our little corners of the American colonies. We were Americans. George Whitfield was said to be America's first great public figure. One in five colonists had seen and heard him in person. Drink that in. One in five colonists had seen and heard George Whitfield in person. One of those, of course, was Benjamin Franklin. You can buy a little paperback copy of his diary. That gives a lot of space to George Whitfield. Now, Franklin was a deist. He wasn't a believer. But like some things, he printed some of Whitfield's sermons as a printer in Philadelphia. He says in there, Mr. Whitfield would convert me, but he shall fail. But he was enamored with him. 
Matter of fact, a famous story is Whitfield was raising money for an orphanage for Indian children in Georgia, which he got famous for. And uh, Franklin decided to go out and hear him. He thought he was a good speaker. So he went out there, and the story is that he left his money at home so he wouldn't give to the offering. I don't want to give to this. But it, Whitfield was so persuasive. And the story is, after it was all over, he was borrowing money from friends to put in the offering that he would pay back later. Another one, Whitfield was outside of Philadelphia. A vast number of people were listening to Whitfield preaching. And uh, Franklin was there, and he was wondering, I wonder how big this crowd is. He knew how to estimate a crowd by pacing it off. I don't know how to do that. He paced the crowd all the way around the crowd, came back and recorded there were 20,000 people there listening to a man in an open air, unaided by a microphone. He said that in Philadelphia during the Great Awakening, if you saw two people on the street having a discussion, if you got close, you'd find out it was almost always about religion. That was the subject. You know how that came about? Christians returned to Christianity, lived in the power of the Holy Ghost, and our nation's never been the same. And a very important part of what happened had to do with the Baptists, not patting us on the back, being, you know, some kind of a bigot for the Baptists. I'm not talking about our denomination. I'm talking about the idea of New Testament practice, which goes along with New Testament power. So the Baptists were a very important part, although they're not that famous. Let's pray. Oh, Lord.